Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. As always, I'm glad to have everyone uh, with us uh, today. Uh, Over the next couple of days on this show, we're going to uh, take a slightly different approach uh, to politics. Um, And that's because this is, after all, the week of the Memorial Day holiday. Summer is uh, rapidly approaching us. And so um, we'll leave the headlines of politics Aside for just now, you know we're going to be talking politics for months to come as the 2022 election cycle approaches. But for the next couple of days, we're going to talk about the intersection of politics and popular culture. Um, and we have two wonderful guests to do just that. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking to A.O. Scott, who is the chief film critic for The New York Times, who wrote an article a couple of weeks ago that really spoke to me. It was uh, headlined, um, What the Movies Taught Me About Democracy. And, and Tony singles out uh, seven pictures that he thinks speak to who we are as a country. So we'll talk to him tomorrow. But today, I'm really happy to be joined by Ron Brownstein. Ron Brownstein, you all know, I'm sure, a CNN senior political analyst. He also uh, works with The Atlantic, He writes for publications as diverse as the National Journal, The Atlantic, and many others. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize nominee, and um, he has a new book, Rock Me on the Water, which is his look at why he believes 1974 in Los Angeles was an extraordinarily important moment of creativity, um, collaboration, that, in fact, spoke to the political times in which people lived. Is that, a, Ron, a fair enough way to just very quickly uh, speak about the book? Uh, absolutely, Bill. Good to see you, or at least hear you again. Um, I would add only one thing. It was also a moment of amazing fun, I think, and an incredible constellation or confluence of talent in the same place at the same time. Yeah, and I want to talk about that. I do think you, it's great to talk to you again. We, You and I uh, used to intersect out covering presidential campaigns. I think your first presidential campaign was the same as mine. It was 1984 mm-hmm. uh, covering yeah. uh, the uh, Mondale campaign against uh, Ronald Reagan. I still remember yeah. working in that awful Moscone Center for the Democratic uh, Convention yeah. in 84. I, 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 I was covering Gary Hart, uh, Gary Hart's last ditch uh, efforts at that point. Although I will say it is nice for us to get together without involving trudging through the snow in Iowa and New Hampshire, which is uh, is not always, you know, Uh, exciting in its own way, but a little exhausting too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So here's how I'd like, you are out in Los Angeles um, where you're based again and have been for uh, what, seven years now. Seven years now. Um, Yeah. I left in 2014. If I can read um, something that really comes up at the very end of your book, I think Mm -hmm. it's a good way to start our conversation. You say in the acknowledgments, this book often felt like a refuge from my day job of chronicling the dark conflicts of modern American politics 
amid the terrible suffering that the coronavirus pandemic brought to so many American families. It was a joyful labor to spend time with these transcendent L.A. artists at their creative peak. And I really understand how this book might have, must have been a joy um, and, a, and a great break from covering day-to-day politics. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, well, the book is the story of the simultaneous transformation of movies, music, television, and even politics that occurred in L.A. in the early 1970s. So it's really the era, as someone said, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're essentially writing about, I, I, would, I would tell people, Jackson Brown and Jerry Brown and Chinatown. You know, it's kind of that era. <laughs> and for me, as, as an author, you know, amid all that we have been dealing with in this country in the last few years, it almost felt like a vacation at points to go immerse myself in the world of the early 1970s. And I think for many readers have had, the, have had that same effect. Um, because, you know, this was a moment where uh, uh, L.A. was at the center of the national uh, cultural conversation in two ways. I mean, the first, like at the first level, was just what I what I mentioned to you that it was just an incredible confluence of talent. I mean, in TV, you had Norman Lear and Larry Gelbart and James L. Brooks, Carol O'Connor, Alan Alda, Mary Tyler Moore, all simultaneously uh, working in movies. What made it really extraordinary was you had the two generations of great filmmakers that were all that were both producing meaningful movies. You, you had the directors born in the 20s and 30s who really were producing, by and large, their greatest work. Robert Altman, Alan Pakula, uh, Bob Rafelson, Roman Polanski. And you also had simultaneously the first contributions from the, the filmmakers born in the 40s, right? The baby boomers. Spielberg and Lucas and Scorsese are making uh, their first movies. And then in music, uh, in the year that I write about in 1974, there were career redefining albums released all in that same year by Joni Mitchell, Linda Ronstadt, uh, the Eagles, Jackson Brown, as well as the big reunion tours uh, by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and Bob Dylan and the band. So at one level, man, this is, you know, this is comparable to the art world in New York in the 50s, I believe, or even the literary world in Paris in the 20s. This is an historic confluence of talent in one place at one time. But then there's the other layer of the story, which is I believe that if you look at the pop culture of the early 1970s and a process that went on for years but did culminate in this 12-month period of 1974, this is the moment when a lot of the ideas that emerged out of the social movements of the 1960s was cemented into American popular culture, never to be dislodged. And in that way, it is really a hinge in our cultural, social, and thus political life. Um, You break down the book in terms of months of the year uh, 1974, and um, you start the book by uh, uh, telling us, essentially, that one of the things that made January so terribly important, you've mentioned Joni Mitchell briefly a minute ago, Mm. was uh, in the middle of January, uh, her record, Court and Spark, was released. Let's listen to just a little bit of the title track to that record. Love came to my door with a sleeping roll And a madman's soul, he thought for sure I'd seen him Dancing up a river in the dark Looking for a woman to court and spark. Oh, 
so wonderful to hear her sing that song. Why was that such an important record for Joni Mitchell, Ron? Well, it, it really, you know, Joni Mitchell was revered by other artists. Uh, uh, in, in the constellation of music talent in L.A., I would say that she was the one who most awed her uh, contemporaries and and her um, uh, you know her fellow her fellow musicians, um, but she had not really been a big commercial star until mm-hmm. Court and Spark uh, was released in January 1974, and this really was the album that catapulted her uh, to kind of a much larger uh, mass audience. And uh, you know it was it, the other thing about Johnny Mitchell that that really is striking in this period. She wrote this album while she was living with David Geffen. Uh, the, yeah. the, you know, the uh, record uh, mogul uh, and later became just kind of mogul mogul. Um, and um, she was living with David Geffen largely because she was recovering from a bad breakup with Jackson Brown. And it just shows you just how close all of this was, right? I mean, all of these people were kind of, you know, bouncing into each other in, in multiple ways uh, all, all over West L.A. And, you know, you mentioned that the book is, is organized month by month through the year 1974. You know, I, I say in the book, I mean, any, any kind of artistic or political development uh, powerful enough to reverberate decades later, obviously it didn't happen only in that 12-month period. Uh, I believe 1974 was the culmination of trends in each of these different industries that had developed over a period of years. But I wanted to tell the story in one year, um, and in a month-by-month format, because I think that really gives readers a very concentrated sense of just how much of this was going on at the same time, right? I mean, that, that I think is what is in some ways most striking, that, you know, this is the one year, for example, in television, where All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore and MASH are on TV the same night together, that CBS Saturday Night lineup along with Bob Newhart. And Carol Burnett. And it is the same year that Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles are releasing these career redefining albums. And the same year that Chinatown uh, and Godfather 2 and The Conversation are released and Shampoo, Nashville and Jaws are filmed. <clears throat> and you just have this incredible, uh, you know, uh, uh, beehive of activities going on in Los Angeles um, literally within blocks of each other, producing culture that still reverberates and resonates 50 years later, almost 50 years later. Um, so I, I want to get into talking about television and pictures and, and as 70, 1974 being a crucial year in those things. But, but I, I started with Linda Ronstadt because I think it's important to say that people who look at your book and say, well, why Los Angeles? Why 1974? What was in mm-hmm. the water? Part of what was in the water is expressed by that music community you're talking about. Yep. These are these are people who came together, worked together collaboratively, uh, partied together collaboratively. Uh, is it Graham Nash who at one point, uh, you quote him saying, is you'd grab your guitar and go to a yeah. friend's house and who knew yeah. what was going to happen? And yeah. that's an important <laughs> moment in right. uh, in in artists in the in the life of musical artists. Yes, and you know, I think as you as you as you note, it was expressed 
this sense of collaboration was perhaps most powerful in music, but it also existed in its own ways in movies and television. You know, I, I, I talked to about, about 120 people, most of the people who are involved in creating this great culture, uh, pop culture in the early 1970s spoke with me. And the, and the word or the concept that I heard the most about, like, to your question, why L.A.? Why at that moment? Really, there were two words. It was kind of it was openness and it was collaboration. I mean, there was a feeling that L.A. was very open to new ideas and there was a feeling there was a community in each of these individual silos. Now, there wasn't that much interplay between the silos, but in music and movies and television and all of them, there was a sense that things were changing. One, one person said to me, you know, we were part of a wave that was building. Um, and um, there was friendly competition on the TV side between Norman Lear and Larry Gelbart and James L. Brooks. And they all took inspiration from the sense that they were breathing new life into the sitcom format that went all the way back uh, to the early 1950s. And, you know, that younger generation of filmmakers, not so much the older generation, but the younger generation of filmmakers, they kind of hung out together up in Malibu at the, at the house of uh, Julia Phillips and uh, you know, they encouraged each other, Spielberg and Lucas and others, uh, as they as they were getting uh, getting started. Um, uh, and then music, most of all. I mean, uh, Jackson Brown talked to me about the story. Uh, well, first of all, Jackson Brown gave to the Eagles the song "Take It Easy" before he recorded it themselves. I mean, just think about that for a moment. I mean, this this is a song that blasts them out of the gate. Um, that really, you know, is, is just an enormous radio hit. And he really felt no hesitation about letting his buddy Glenn Fry record it before he did. In fact, Rock Me on the Water, the title song or the title of the book, he let Linda Ronstadt record before he did. And of course, as, as many listeners may recall, Glenn Fry of the Eagles famously finished Take It Easy. Jackson Brown had written about 80% of the song. He was stuck at the verse, I'm standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. And Glenn Fry comes back. Uh, you know, Glenn Fry, it's just wonderful story about how Glenn Fry is needling him week after week. Hey, you ever finished that song? Like, can we look at that song? We kind of like to, you know, and Jackson Brown's like, no, I, I just haven't finished it. You know, if you want to take a crack at it, you take a crack at it. And of course, Glenn Fry comes back with, there's a girl, my Lord, in a flatbed Ford slowing down to take a look at me. And that was the world. That was the world they were in. I mean, it was not only the artists mingling together, but at that point, the agents, the producers, even the executive. And there was this sense of creating something new as kind of the strictures uh, that had limited some of this art, uh, you know, in terms of uh, 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 limits on what you could say and, and stories you could tell were being left. Warren Beatty, Robert Town, who were involved. Town wrote Chinatown. Town wrote Shampoo with Beatty. I mean, they talked to me about how much fun this was. I mean, they, they recognized they had more freedom than any filmmaking generation before them. And they were determined at that point uh, to use that to, to comment, to, to make a statement about the society around them in a way that both TV and movies had resolutely refused to do in the 1960s. So uh, let's let's break some of that down. First of all, I love the fact uh, uh, that you wrote a line early in the book that you you're using it to talk about Hollywood and the culture shift from the 60s to the 70s. But it really applies to the television industry back then and to some extent to the music industry. And I love the image, Rod. You say, like an elderly neighbor drawing blinds against a shout in the street, Hollywood 
looked away from the drama unfolding around it, meaning the Vietnam War, the anti-war protests, Richard Nixon, all of that. Um, the protesting began in the 60s. The revolution of thinking by young people began mm -hmm. in the 60s. But it wasn't until the 70s that it really began to be reflected in the entertainment industry. And if we could, um, you write extensively about All in the Family, which debuted a few years before 1974, mm -hmm. but was it coming to its peak and mm -hmm. was also at that point in 74 uh, the, uh, the cornerstone of this incredible CBS primetime lineup. And one of the things that you talk about on All in the Family, which was so revolutionary, is CBS was scared to death of putting a comedy on the air that featured Archie Bunker, the bigot. And I want to play for people the disclaimer that you write about, which CBS oh, wow. used at the start of that show. Let's listen. Warning, the program you are about to see is all in the family. It seeks to throw a humorous spotlight on our frailties, prejudices, and concerns. By making them a source of laughter, we hope to show, in a mature fashion, just how absurd they are. Okay, wow. and Ron, one more quick thing, one more quick thing, just as an example of the kind of, uh, of, of script writing was in that show, I want to play just a tiny bit of an Archie Bunker speech. Let's listen. The next step is to get them to pay me like a fella. What do you mean by that? Oh, they're putting me on regular next week, but they're paying me less than they paid the man who used to run the forklift. Oh, well, come on, Irene, after all, it's a well-known fact. Uh, men are weight more than women. <laughs> Archie, have you been reading Playboy? No, Irene, the Bible. <laughs> Bible? The Bible. And in the Bible, it says, God made man his own image. He made women after, from a rib. A cheaper cut. <laughs> Ron, wow. truly a revolutionary show. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Bill, I talk, I tell a lot of stories in the book about a lot of different iconic pop culture uh, achievements, whether it's the albums or the movies. But everything I, I discuss in the book, I think nothing has resonated more with audiences than the story of how All in the Family got to the air and how it signaled a lasting turning point in the history of television. I think people recognize that even at the time, as something fundamentally different than they had ever seen before. And lots of people have talked to me about remembering watching it with their parents, really on that Saturday night CBS lineup. Um, Nash was great and, and historic in its own way. Mary Tyler Moore was great and historic in its own way. But when you watch those first episodes of All in the Family, even 50 years later, as you suggest, it still comes at you like a rock through the television screen to hear Archie's language. Um, and basically, All in the Family, when it went on the air in January 71, I believe is the turning point in television history because it establishes I think irreversibly, the idea that the medium was a fit platform from which to comment on the society around it, which, is, which was a conclusion that the networks very emphatically tried to avoid in the 1960s. As I say in the book, in the 1960s, uh, Walter Cronkite would spend half an hour every night chronicling all the new pressures and fissures opening in American life. And then the networks would spend the next three and a half hours trying to erase them from people's minds. I mean, you know, in the 60s, we got the Beverly Hillbillies, 
and Petticoat Junction and Green Acres, and we were still have Lucy Ball, Lucille Ball, and uh, Ed Sullivan. Uh, we didn't get any closer to Vietnam than Gomer Pyle or Hogan's Heroes or McHale's Navy. And essentially, the networks were prisoners of their size at that point. I mean, shows, there were only three networks, shows needed such a vast audience in order to succeed uh, that they operated under the theory of what was called the least objectionable program. You know, programs that would be acceptable to every corner of the country, which in effect um, gave a veto to the most culturally conservative rural parts uh, of, of America. And interestingly, that began to break down in the late 1960s. Yet CBS, CBS was, was the dominant network. James Aubrey, who had been the president in the 60s, was the one who created this assembly line of shows, you know, Mayberry and Andy Griffith and uh, the, the Clampets and Gomer Pyle, you know, all about kind of the simple virtues of rural life. Uh, but as the, as the decade went on, and the baby boom became a bigger part of the buying audience. Um, uh, there began to, pressure began to emerge from the business side initially of CBS that said, look, we have to get younger and more urban in our audience. As, as one TV writer put it, you know, the view became, it doesn't matter how many farmers you have watching unless you're trying to sell tractors, <laughs> which I thought yes. was a very clever way of putting yeah. it. What, one of the things about, of course, the CBS rural lineup was that CBS broadcasts at a frequency that gave it enormous penetration mm -hmm. across broad rural sections of the United States. And so, as you Absolutely. point out, that's the audience they were appealing to. NBC and ABC uh, didn't have quite that same penetration. Um, so here's what my question is, though, Rod. As I listen to clips from All in the Family, as controversial as it was today— I wonder, in the climate that we're living in today, I don't think that show, I think people would be even more deeply offended by it today than they were back then. I'm not sure, uh, given our concerns about how we talk about diversity, how we uh, talk about inclusiveness, I don't know how that show would play today, Ron. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. First of all, All in the Family was very controversial even back then. It, you know, as, as, as we were saying, it emerged out of this desire on the part of the new president of CBS, Robert Wood, uh, who emerged out of L.A., KNXT, who was personally very conservative, a Nixon fan, a Reagan fan, a big critic of the student, student demonstrators in the 60s. But he recognized they had to get younger, more urban, uh, uh, largely because he came out of L.A., and ultimately teamed up with Norman Lear. Uh, each of them, as I write in the book, I think is a new way of understanding. You know, we, we see Lear in retrospect, as this titan of tele who transformed television, and he was in many ways. But, you know, we can lose sight of what was on the other end of that, which is that heading into All in the Family, there was nothing in his career that would lead you to think this is the guy who is going to transform television. He was a very, he produced very mainstream uh, entertainment. I mean, the Andy Williams shows, you know, Divorce American Style, Come Blow Your Horn. But there was something about this story about the bigoted, about the bigoted father and the liberal son-in-law that detonated in him, reminded him of his own story with his father. And he found an urgent and contemporary voice that had eluded him, really, frankly, up until that point uh, in his career. And he produced this kind of searing, as you say, this searing uh, uh, program, especially in the early years before they kind of softened Archie and he became, as somebody said, father knows least. Um, but in those early years, when it was the, you know, essentially what All in the Family was, 
was the generation gap of the 1960s condensed into a single living room. And you were locked in there with the, the baby boom son and daughter, uh, son-in-law and daughter, and the, you know, the greatest generation uh, parents battling out everything that families all across America were battling out. Could you do that today uh, with that language? It's kind of hard to imagine. I will say that when I watched that first episode, again, while writing the book, it really, as I said, it comes at you like a rock through the television. You almost can't believe what you're hearing. Yeah, in that first episode, uh, 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 Michael, Mike, and uh, and and the daughter Gloria. I can't block yeah, her Gloria. name right now, Gloria. but yeah, Gloria. Yeah, Gloria um, are home alone on a Sunday. The bunkers are off to church. Edith and Archie, and all Mike wants to do is make love to Gloria while they have the house to themselves. In yep. fact, that an old, that in and of itself at that point was something you didn't really show on TV. The talk about that. And then the bunkers come back uh, while they're beginning to embrace in the living room. And even that was considered incredibly provocative television at the time. And, and in fact, uh, the, the battle kind of concentrated over one line. Archie walks back in as Mike and Gloria are heading their way to the bedroom. And he says in his thick Queens accent, 1110 on a Sunday morning. And everybody knew what he meant. Sunday morning. <laughs> on a Sunday morning. Um, and, you know, interestingly, like uh, you, you played the disclaimer. In addition to the disclaimer, which Rob Reiner, like, literally threw up his hands about when I talked to him, you know, 45 years later. Um, he's like, they're putting us on the air and they're warning people about us at the same time. Um, in addition to the disclaimer, CBS did not want the first episode to be the first episode. They thought it was too provocative. They wanted the second episode to be the first episode. Um, uh, but Norman Lear, as he did many times, threatened to quit if they didn't run the first episode first. And his argument was actually correct. He, he basically felt we all had to jump into the deep end of the pool together, you know, right from the outset. We had to show Archie in full. And I tell the story in the book, they didn't know you know, all the family went on the air at 9.30 on a Tuesday, not 11.10 on a Sunday. They didn't know until they, they heard the first dialogue which episode CBS had actually put on yeah. first. Yeah, yeah. Um, listen, I've got to get to a break, but when we come back, I want to talk about one of the most important movies, not only of 1974, but really one of the most important of all American pictures, Chinatown. We'll do that when we continue our conversation with Ron Brownstein after this. My guest on Political Rewind today is Ron Brownstein, a senior political analyst for CNN, writer for The Atlantic. Uh, spent many years in Washington covering politics there, now does it from Los Angeles, which is where he also was based when he wrote Rock Me on the Water, 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. Ron, uh, I, don't, I think when you talk about the, the importance of 1974 in film, Chinatown is the picture that jumps out. Robert Towne uh, wrote the screenplay. Roman Polanski, of course, was the director. And I have to say that it is, from my non-critical point of view, as close to a perfect movie as it's possible to get. Yes? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in that camp, too. I mean, I think Chinatown is about as close to a perfect movie. I mean, it was a hellish process to get there. 
um, uh, you know, tremendous conflict between Robert Town and Roman Polanski. Town, uh, the writer Polanski, returning to L.A. for the first time since the murder of his wife Sharon Tate uh, by the man by Charles Manson's followers. Um, uh, enormous conflict between Polanski and Faye Dunaway. Jack Nicholson, in his kind of you know confident, bemused way, kind of taking all of this in without really getting too heavily involved in any any of it, and yet. You know, through it, they produced an absolute classic that was recognized even at the time as a commentary, not only not so much in L.A. in the 30s, but America in the 1970s. One of the reviews described it as Watergate with real water. You know, I you know, oh, that's perfect. So here's what I'd I'd like to do about that, to make a point about that. Um, I kind of compare Chinatown to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which was made in 1939, and I'll tell you mm-hmm. why. So 39, we have this idealistic movie about a young Jimmy Stewart, gets to the Senate by mistake, basically, fights the good fight against corruption, and in the long run, he wins. Because this is the pre-World War II days in America. Yep. This is FDR. We're coming out of the Depression. There's a Somewhat optim- optimism may be returning uh, to the country, and so the picture fit. Chinatown in 1974 is 180 degrees the other direction. Yes. Jake Giddies, played by Jack Nicholson, the cocky private detective who thinks he's getting to the bottom of the corruption in the city that is being uh, uh, that that there are the powerful forces trying to steal water from the valley, bring it to Los Angeles, which is based on a true story. And his biggest nemesis is uh, the character played by Walter Houston, Faye Dunaway's John, father in the picture. John Houston. I'm John Houston. John Houston. Um, yeah. Here's just here here's just a little bit of Jake and Noah in confrontation in that picture. Mr. Gitts. Gittis. Gittis. You're dealing with a disturbed woman who's just lost her husband. I don't want her taken advantage of. Sit down. What for? You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. Why is that funny? It's what the district attorney used to tell me in Chinatown. Yeah? Was he right? Exactly what do you know about me? Sit down. Mainly that you're rich and too respectable to want your name in the newspapers. Of course I'm respectable. I'm old. Ron, that line, you may think you know what you're dealing with, but you don't, is really crucial. And it's it's, it's the whole picture. Jack Nicholson is way, way out of his depth. Right. It is the absolute great, great finding of the right clip. And it is obviously the last line of the movie is legendary. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. But that is really the exclamation point on the line that you quote, which which to Robert Town, when I talked to him, who wrote the screenplay, agonized over the screenplay, dragged it out uh, over a period of years. uh, That was the essence of the movie. And that was the essence of the time. I mean, what, what was happening in the early 1970s? Uh, was uh, in, in the era of the Pentagon Papers and Watergate and the IT&T scandal, all the other, the, the plumbers, all the other Nixon scandals, uh, Counterpro, 
Americans were realizing they didn't know as much as they think they did about how the institutions that ran their lives, whether it was government or business, uh, were operating. And what, what Chinatown consecrated in many ways was this shift in attitude um, uh, toward those large institutions. Uh, you know, Hollywood didn't lead the change. It was now but reflecting and consecrating uh, the change. Just look at polling, the, the University of Michigan's National Election Studies polls. The share of Americans who say you could trust government to do what's right all or most of the time plummeted from the mid-60s to the mid-70s. And Chinatown, uh, like Godfather One and Godfather Two, which has a similar message about kind of endemic corruption, um, it reflected uh, those uh, those, those changes. Uh, what's also striking to me about Chinatown is that the, 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 the sleuth, the detective, Jack Nicholson, never figures out ultimately the whole story, right? I mean, it's a very early 1970s notion. I mean, usually the detective, even if he can't uh, enforce or she can't enforce justice, they figure out at the end what happened. Nicholson never does. And because he doesn't, he precipitates tragedy. And that is a theme in a lot of the early 1970s films that, you know, kind of the wheels within wheels, the workings of the real workings of power are so inscrutable that you just can't really understand uh, what's being done in your name, what's happening in the society. A very different perspective uh, coming out of Hollywood than we had seen uh, in the 1960s or before. And as you say, you know, in 1939, with Mr. Smith goes to Washington, there was a desire to show that democracy could work because it was facing this existential threat from fascism, right? And it was, it was, we, we were showing that democracy was a system uh, that could stand up to the, the challenge and threat of fascism. By 1974, democracy seemed to be uh, being rotted from the inside out. And it is striking that, uh, you know, Polanski said at one point, um, you know, they were filming Chinatown during the Saturday Night Massacre in 1973 when Nixon, you know, fired the Watergate special prosecutor as revelations were piling on revelation. Uh, and he said, you know, he was struck by the similarities between the headlines and the scripts and what they were and what yeah. and the story they were telling every day. So, yes, I think it does stand as an absolute monument of the turning point in the way Hollywood presented authority and power in America. Well, and and and, and I think that's important to point out. And you make this point in a salient way in the book. Uh, the 60s, we saw movies like uh, My Fair Lady. Uh, Mary Poppins. We saw these big Hollywood mm. spectacles. You you actually um, talk about them. In, you say they were elephantine productions that emerged from assembly lines uh, back in the in the sixties and, yeah. and before that, of course. And and Chinatown represents, I think, and the point that I think you make that's so important is Chinatown's the movie that spoke to those young people like me because I'm of that age who learned that we needed to be more skeptical of government and the institutions of government during the 60s. It's why we went out in the streets, and it wasn't until the 70s that movies and television particularly responded to that. Yes, right. You know, right, absolutely right. So, you know, I believe the fundamental uh, economic current that drove this transformation of, of movies and television and music even earlier was the growing real, the growing awareness of the baby boom as a critical and expanding part of the audience. And that ultimately, uh, the people who ran these industries felt that they had to produce 
products, culture that reflected the values and experiences of that, of that growing audience. And in many ways, obviously music was first uh, uh, in, in, in because the young people were a bigger share of their audience than they were for TV uh, or movies. Um, and, but, but this process rolled through each of these industries sequentially. And um, uh, what happened in the early 1970s to me demonstrated why culture is often ahead of politics in predicting where the country will go. And the reason is, I think, because particularly at a moment of big generational change like we had in the 60s and early 1970s, uh, is that these industries do have to be more responsive to changing views and changing mores and changing values uh, because they, they are more dependent on that audience. The electorate in the country then, now, and probably always is older and whiter than the country overall. That's just the reality based on, you know, voter turnout patterns. And as a result, uh, as Nixon showed, I mean, the irony of this period is that Nixon won two elections by mobilizing the people, most of the voters, most unhappy with the way the country was changing, precisely as the ideas that emerged from the 60s were consolidating their triumphs in popular culture. And yet, uh, even though Nixon won these elections and Reagan won elections by mobilizing voters who didn't like the way the country was changing, um, they couldn't stop the changes. I mean, it wasn't like after Nixon and Reagan won, we went back to living like the Donna Reed show, you know, with women kind of waiting at home for their man <laughs> at five o'clock. Or we went back to kind of routinely trusting what you heard from government, the, the, the cultural changes that were set in motion by the 60s, that were embedded into popular culture in the early 1970s, they endured. Uh, you know, they, they remain with us to this day. And, and I actually think, despite the fact that at that moment, you could win an election by running against those changes, you know, as I say in the book, you can win elections by running against those changes. What you can't actually do is stop the changes. And, and I do think there's something similar happening now when we kind of look at the you know, the, the, the millennials and Gen Z are the biggest generation uh, since the baby boom. If you, if you bring them together together, I think they're a bigger share of the population now than the baby boom ever was. You look at the pop culture that they're consuming, it's about a radically inclusive and diverse America. There are a lot of voters who don't like that, that picture. Uh, Trump showed there's a lot of power in mobilizing those voters. Um, but I think that if you kind of look at the pop culture these generations are consuming, it gives you an idea of what America is going to look like in, in, in 10 years that is more accurate than you will get from parsing the 2020 election returns. Um, uh, you also point out uh, another uh, important moment in terms of how, how, how creatively fertile 1974 and the years right before and after it were. Even as uh, uh, Chinatown was about to be released, Warren Beatty, uh, with again with a Robert Town script, uh, is finishing shooting for Shampoo, uh, which was another cultural touchstone of the time. Um, but I'll tell you what I'd like to do, uh, Ron. I want to move ahead a little bit mm. of uh, the movie Shampoo and Chinatown and go to another important picture that you talk about. Uh, in 1970, Robert Altman had released MASH, a course about the Korean War, uh, but really a commentary on Vietnam indirectly, because at that point, people weren't yeah. doing movies specifically no. about the Vietnam War. That took a lot longer. Um, and the TV show MASH never had the political edge that the movie did, but nevertheless, it was hugely popular. All right, so Altman's made that in 70, and then he turns around in your year, 1974, and makes 
Nashville, which mm. is an extraordinary, sweeping movie about the culture in Nashville at the time, the country music uh, culture. And I want to ask you uh, to talk about why it's important, but let's just for a minute listen to a little bit. Absolutely. Um, Altman put together this incredible ensemble cast, and he allowed each of them, Keith Carradine, Lily Tomlin, uh, Henry Gibson, they got to write their own songs for Mm -hmm. this movie um, about country music in Nashville. Um, Henry Gibson plays a character named Haven Hamilton, who's modeled after Roy Acuff, who, of course, is the grandfather of the Grand Ole Opry. And I just want to play a little bit of a song that Haven Hamilton sings from the stage of Opryland uh, to give us a sense of how they were dealing with the music of the time. Henry Gibson as Haven Hamilton. Uh, Ron, one other quick thing, and I'll turn it over to you. Uh, the picture, that what's wonderful about it, and what ties it to politics, is that there's a cam- there's a candidate for president yeah. named Hal Philip Walker, who is going to campaign in Nashville. He's going to have a big rally, which takes place at the end of the movie, and his advance man is out there working on how to set it up. And but there's a sound truck. That reminds us of the sound uh, loudspeakers in MASH in many ways. Hal Philip Walker's campaign truck uh, goes around Nashville, and we hear it repeatedly. And it, he held, it, it has Hal Philip Walker saying things like this, two quotes. When you pay more for an automobile than it cost Christopher Columbus to make his first voyage to America, that's politics. Then he says, no wonder we often know how to make a watch, but we don't know the time of day. <laughs> <laughs> Ron, tell us about that movie from your point of view. So uh, wonderful, as always, clips uh, that you found. Um, you know, Nashville isn't as well remembered as some of the other great early 70s movies. And, uh, you know, it probably isn't in all dimensions as great a movie as Chinatown or Godfather 1 or Godfather 2. I think those would stand above it in, uh, in early 70s achievement. But in many ways, Nashville is the culmination of everything that was happening in Hollywood from the late 1960s to the early 1970s. Um, it was Robert Altman's attempt. He called it my metaphor for America. It was his attempt to put into one sprawling movie with about two dozen characters and no discernible central plot, um, all of the big themes that were emerging in early 1970s uh, cinema, the the inability to make personal connections, the free-floating threat of violence, uh, the corruption uh, of American society, here portrayed, as I write, not on the epic scale of Chinatown, but in the kind of very intimate personal acts of betrayal that that resonate uh, through the movie. In the book, I note and pair, I think Nashville in a new way of kind of thinking about it, um, I pair it with Jaws, 
It was being filmed mm-hmm. at the same time as Jaws. And ultimately, it was released almost exactly at the same time of Jaws. In fact, Newsweek put Nashville on the cover in June 1975, and Time put Jaws on the cover in June 1975, right before they both put Bruce Springsteen on the cover in, uh, in 1975. Um, and in many ways, Nashville was the end of something, just as Jaws was the beginning of what came next. I mean, um, I, I, I say in the book that I, I look at Nashville as Altman's Moby Dick. It was his great white whale, right? He, he tried to put a portrait of of, of really uh, all of America at, at, on the eve of the bicentennial into one movie. And, it, you know, it has its rough spots. I mean, it's kind of ragged at points, but it, it has a cumulative power in terms of how people saw their society at that moment. And, and as I say, in some ways, even though there were other movies uh, in, influenced by the early 1970s vision that came later, whether it was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or certainly Network, even Coming Home, Nashville is in many ways a culmination of, of, the, of the transformation of Hollywood that I write about. Jaws, on the other hand, filmed simultaneously a few hundred miles to the north off Martha's Vineyard while uh, Altman and his crew were sweating in Nashville, is the beginning of what comes next. It's the beginning of the blockbuster era. And let, let me just add one last thing real quick about Nashville. You know, uh, uh, Henry Gibson's character um, is part of the crew that is performing at the Grand Old Opry in one scene in the movie. It happened that they rented out the Grand Ole Opry to, to uh, shoot that scene the night that Nixon resigned. And Roy Acuff, who was kind of the, you know, uh, the, uh, what, the, the, the kind of uh, uh, proprietor in many ways of the Grand Ole Opry at that point, um, as you'll see in the book, you know, it, it feels increasingly alienated from the cast and the crew who are there and basically says, it is you people basically blue America in a kind of an early vision of the, of the term that did this. It is you people uh, who did this. And uh, Nashville, not only then on screen, but in life, kind of captures that collision between what we would come to know as red and blue America. Yeah, you tell a pretty uh, fascinating story, I think. Uh, Henry, uh, of the, the, the crew shuts down briefly. Uh, filming because they all want to watch the Nixon resignation yeah. speech. And Roy Acuff is in the room, and I think you say that uh, he came to tears. Uh, yes, uh, locked himself him, in his office very, is playing the, yeah. playing the fiddle. Uh, Got to get to our final break of the show. More with Ron Brownstein. The book is Rock Me on the Water after these messages. Ron Brownstein, your new book is Rock Me on the Water, 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. Uh, one of the ways it transformed politics was it's when Jerry Brown, the young Jerry Brown, uh, uh, started to uh, his ascendancy as a, mm-hmm. uh, 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 on a tra- trajectory that would eventually make him governor of California and subsequently a candidate for president of the United States. But if, if you don't mind... I, because it's, we're doing this in Georgia, just let's talk at least briefly. You cover uh, Jane Fonda and Tom mm-hmm. Hayden. And Jane Fonda became a very uh, obviously recognizable and I think very well-liked figure when she was married to Ted Turner and lived here. How does she particularly fit into your book? Well, you know, uh, along the same line as Jerry Brown. Uh, you know, I believe that the central issue in pop culture in the early, if there was a connecting thread in all of this sprawling pop culture that I'm writing about. 
it was the, the, the question that was driving so much of it is, was what of the ideals of the 60s, what of the hope for change um, could be made relevant, could, could be made to still have relevance in the very different political and social soil uh, of the 1970s. And Jerry Brown, in his own way, in his 1974 race, by the way, he won the California Democratic primary on a message of political reform the same month that Chinatown was released. Jerry Brown uh, adapted that question to politics. And Jane Fonda and Tom Hayden, in their own lives, reflected, uh, I think, as severe an example of that. I mean, they were emblematic of uh, uh, and perhaps at the, they were, not perhaps, they were at the far edge of those who had marched and protested in the 1960s. Um, it, through the early 1970s, each in their own way grew more alienated uh, from American society, drifted further away from the mainstream, uh, became more radicalized, but also ineffective, right? I mean, Jane Fonda ends up on, a, on an anti-aircraft gun in Hanoi. Um, and the story that I tell is that, uh, again, in parallel to the question that was being asked in its own way on Jackson Brown albums and in Chinatown and in uh, All in the Family and Mary Tyler Moore and MASH, in the same way they were asking the question, how do you hold on to these ideals that motivate you but express them in a way that is more relevant uh, and effective? And the story that I tell essentially is how Jane Fonda came in from the cult. I mean, 1973 and 1974 really are the moment where she, her trajectory reverses. And instead of moving further away from the mainstream toward greater isolation and alienation, both her and Tom Hayden find a way to reverse course and move back into the mainstream uh, through her movie career and everything that comes next. Uh, and his uh, running for political office after being an organizer of kind of, you know, the, the radical left. Uh, in, in the 60s. And in that way, they are following the same trajectory as really, you know, millions of their contemporaries who were moving into adulthood, families, homes, you know, kind of careers, but yet wanting to hold on to some of the, the beliefs uh, that, that motivated them, uh, you know, during those social movements of the 1960s. It's a really poignant and personal story that I think gives you a new understanding about Fonda and also the very complex relationship between her and Hayden. It essentially picked up Hayden the day after Aaron Sorkin's movie, you know, The Trial of the Chicago 7, uh, and follows him through the lowest moment of his, career, of his life. Um, uh, in, in, uh, where he, and then he ends up in L.A. They ultimately ally. And as I say, they lead each other back to the mainstream or closer to the mainstream anyway. Um, and Jane Fonda, as we well know, um, did come back. She was accepted. At, movie audiences certainly accepted her again. But, of course, we know, Ron, that there are still um, people yep. out there who will never get over Jane Fonda's trip to North Vietnam. Um, and she recognized that. Uh, I, I think it, as well. By the way, <laughs> there's I I don't have it right here. I wish I did. There's a great moment in the Nixon tapes where <laughs> Nixon comments on Jane Fonda. I don't understand that Jane Fonda. I mean, her father Henry's a wonderful man. Yeah. I feel bad for him. <laughs> Henry, <laughs> but didn't she's understand. got something wrong with her. Henry didn't understand Jane Fonda as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rod, we are completely out of time uh, for our conversation, but I'm so grateful to you. There's so much more in your book that, of course, we are, first of all, we don't have time for it. And second of all, people should read your book. Uh, let's not give it all away on our show. It's called Rock Me on the Water, 
1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. Um, thank you so much, Ron, for being with us for Political Rewind today. Bill, thanks for having me. Thanks for this great conversation, and I hope people enjoy the book. Uh, uh, tomorrow, A.O. Scott joins us to talk about the seven movies that taught him about democracy. I said that I thought uh, Chinatown was as close to a perfect movie as a movie could be. One of the things that makes it that way is Jerry Goldsmith's remarkable, remarkable score mm. for the picture. Let's go out listening to the theme from Chinatown. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye, Ron. <laughs>